It's the Perry and Shauna podcast on the real life journey with you, reminding you that you are Abba's beloved child and that Jesus has called you into his massive mission to heal the world. Dr. Jeremy Grinnell with us answering Bible questions. Always have a blast when Jeremy's in and he has his PhD in systematic theology from Calvin. He taught seminary at Cornerstone. He's a Bible teacher now. He's a good friend of Perry and Shauna Mornings, and you need to get a hold of his his book. It's his story of how God worked powerfully in his life through something really, really hard, a really dark time, where his ministry blew apart and God is restored. So bellowingofcain.com, bellowingofcain.com. So here's a question for you, Dr. J. Okay. On the topic of baptism. Oh, my fun. husband <laughs> my husband and I were baptized when we were both very young. We both strayed from God in our teen and young adult years, and then we got married kind of during the end of that season. So my question is this. Should we be rebaptized as a married mm. couple, mm. or is there no need for that? Yeah. Um, this is one of those uh, where you put the caveat on it. This does not constitute legal advice. Please check with a <laughs> Because different churches handle this question in different ways. Sure. Because baptism can mean slightly different things in different contexts. Uh, for example, in, in many traditions, Roman Catholicism, this is the case, um, St. Augustine, she speaks this way as well, baptism is not something that can be redone, right? Because in a sense, God does something when baptism takes, there's a mm-hmm. grace given mm-hmm. or something, mm-hmm. and so the idea of redoing it makes no sense. Well, that's one take on it. Um, the other, but the, on the other side, it, evangelicalism has historically viewed baptism more as a declaration of public faith which is why only adults do it because babies can't and things like that. So if baptism is primarily about a public declaration of your own ownership of faith, then there isn't in that moment, in that in that understanding of it, any tension with redoing it mm-hmm. uh, to have somebody do it again. Because if, say, in this case, there was a, a lapse of faith and you want to reaffirm or you come into a new faith or I have had lots of students who were baptized as infants who would come kind of in a crisis of faith saying, I feel like I want to make a public declaration yeah. that I, I, I couldn't make as an infant, but it's going to blow up my home, right? Because my mm. parents are like, wasn't what we gave you good enough. So there's all of these relational tensions not and pastoral tensions, not just theological ones. The way I tend to counsel people on this, and it is a counsel, so again, talk to your own pastor and sure. your own church to get kind of perspective on what's happening there. But for me, it, it becomes a matter of conscience. Mm-hmm. Um, if your heart moves you, if the spirit moves in your heart saying, this is something that I need to do, Maybe before God, you you know, God doesn't think you need to do it. But if your heart is telling you you need to, then it, that that's still a good reason mm. to to make a public affirmation, particularly if something significant has changed uh, in your life. That said, the alternate answer is just as good. If God will still count and accept, because God is gracious and generous, such that if you you know if your faith. Because you went through confirmation, and in any of these traditions, confirmation is the moment that you claim the baptism you were given. So there's mm-hmm. still a public element to it, and your conscience says, hey, that's I'm good with God. Well, okay. So it's not an issue of like everyone needs rebaptism or nobody does. Mm-hmm. I think the Spirit's work in an individual individual's individual journey will out the fact of whether or not this is a right move for you, because I don't think there's necessarily a wrong answer. Yeah. Yeah, it really is a matter of the heart. And, you know, if if somebody is getting baptized and it goes against what you think baptism is, I think we should always err on the side of, I'm going to affirm 
a deeper commitment to Christ. There you go. Absolutely. Cheer on any kind of deeper commitment to Christ. And when you look at the historical baptismal vows the church has used, you know, kind of throughout longstanding history, there is an implicit understanding that in it that every time you watch someone be baptized, Mm. it is a moment not only for you, like you just said, Perry, to to affirm and celebrate what they're doing, but it's also, in a sense, a reliving of your own. Like, I remember doing mm-hmm. that and yeah. a, kind of a, a reclaiming, a recommitment so that the whole community together is a reaffirming the truth of the story that is proclaimed in the, you know, the going into the waters, into death and into life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The gospel is proclaimed through this activity, so we celebrate it Great every time stuff. we meet it. Great stuff. I was baptized as an infant and longed to have that experience, to experience and know and be present and Absolutely. remember being, you know, dying to self and being raised to life. And and then it it seemed to be there was a window of time when maybe that would have been, you know, appropriate. And then it was like, you know, then I'm married to a pastor. I'm the pastor's wife. Oh, it's like, why is awkward. the pastor's wife off going getting yeah. baptized? What happened to her? So anyway, I held on to it for a long time, but so desired mm. to have that experience. And a few years ago, my husband and I were in Israel. We were at the Jordan River. I was like, Oh, how can you not? <laughs> Lord, and I prayed yeah. about it before going. It wasn't like it was an impromptu decision, but yeah. And I felt absolutely the Lord's affirmation yep. in, I see your heart. I love you. Go ahead, get yourself baptized in the and Jordan River. I know lots of people who, who don't have even the crisis of the journey that you had. Um, who were baptized as adults or whatever, who go to the Holy Lands and get rebaptized simply because they want to they want to be where Jesus was yeah. and yeah. affirm, you know, yeah. that I'm here. Why sure, why can, not? God God yeah. understands the complexity of the human experience. And we've got a first time texter. Woo-woo. Welcome, welcome. Three zero two zero says There's a lot to this question, but I'm going to just boil it right on down. Go for it. Uh, I'd like to know when Jesus became perfect. Was he born perfect or did he have to become perfect? Did he have to somehow reach that place of perfection? Yeah, there there are a lot of moving parts in that. Um, In in a lot of the answer to that is a fair, there's some sophistication in the answer, but we'll see if we can peel it away, peel away the layers of the onion. In one sense, by perfect, I assume we mean holy. Mm-hmm. Uh, sinless, and uh, because Jesus is the Son of God and is fully divine, in that sense, he was, you know, Jesus was always perfect. Jesus has always been holy because God cannot be other than that. Mm-hmm. So from that perspective, it's not something Jesus became when um, when he was born, when he took to himself a true and full human nature and became like one of us. The creeds all say this. He became like one of us, sin accepted. Mm-hmm. So it's he was he became like us, but not like us, because mm-hmm. he had a very particular mission. So what, the way it's usually said or often said is the, hum, the human nature that Christ took up is not a human nature like ours, a broken, fractured human nature post-fall. The mm. human nature that he took on was a true and full human nature, which would be like what Adam and Eve had at the yeah. beginning. So in that regard, even, to, even when you talk about yeah. Christ being human, the full humanity is actually an evidence of perfection. Because mm. true humans are sinless. Oh, come on. This is good. Broken humans, fallen humans, we sin. But we're the anomaly. Mm-hmm. It's what God intended were human beings to be faithful. And so the church, the, the church history, and this, this would take a long time to sort of tease out of the scriptures, but the church theologian Anselm probably said it most concisely. He said, yes, Christ is sinless and divine um, because 
he is divine. But in his humanity, he earns a righteousness that because he's already sinless and divine, he doesn't need and Mm. therefore is available to be shared with us. Mm. So in the end, you have less the idea of like, we have to do what Christ did. This is a place where the uh, do what Jesus did thing breaks down because we cannot be the atoning sacrifice for all people. Christ did that. But what Christ does is then credited to us so that when I come before God, I am clothed not in my own unrighteousness, my own ademic brokenness. I am clothed in the righteousness which Christ earned in his humanity Mm -hmm. but didn't need. Here's a passage from Hebrews 5, 9, and 10. It says, although he was a son, the son of God, Mm -hmm. fully perfect— fully holy, fully pure, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. The way I look at it is that he was born perfect, holy, sinless, but he had to go through every temptation and trial and struggle and challenge. He had to pass every test. Mm -hmm. He passed every test, and he did pass every test. He lived the perfect life that we... Could never live. He died the death that we deserve. He rose again to prove that his perfect obedience brings us salvation. So there is no sense in which Jesus became perfect. And mm-hmm. so that, you know, follows that we have to, you know, sort of Be go through this in- pr- process of becoming perfect. No, our perfection comes from the perfect work of Christ. Does that make sense? And then we yeah. grow. We, you know, we grow into this because there's a sense, theologians talk about this all the time, the holiness with which I am given because I'm in Christ or the justification or the sinless, whatever. And then sort of me growing into that existentially in my experience, like Mm -hmm. I, God sees me as more holy than I actually am. Right. So there's a, there is a sense of progression and change and growth as we sort of catch up to what has been declared true of us. Sure. Yeah. And the, the him seeing us as more holy than we actually are because of Jesus. It's because and of yet Jesus. The, yep. And because he's God, this is where it can get confusing for us as humans. But he knows all the things I've done. Yeah. He knows all my sin. And loves despite. And or loves despite and still of. sees me as righteous. Yep. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's a God thing. Yeah, because he sees us <laughs> in Christ. Right. The Father looks at us through Christ. I love what Tim Keller says. He says, religion is this. I obey, therefore I'm loved. Mm-hmm. The gospel is, I'm, I'm loved, loved, therefore I obey. I obey. Yeah, I love that. And we've got a first-time texter, 1094. It's it's a question about Jesus' return. Mm, And this person has been doing some study about the second coming of Jesus. And the author in the book this person has read seems to feel like it could be any day now Mm. that because of you know, because of what's going on in the world and such. The times and the seasons. Things lining up, it seems this author is saying... It's really close. It could be months. It could be weeks. It could be maybe a few years. And so, yeah, this is something that we, yeah. we've we always talked about. We always think about when when is he coming. So, yeah, what do you think? Yeah, well, if you, if you look at the great ecumenical creeds, they all assert the uh, return of Christ and don't put any conditions on it. And I think when we use the language of imminent return, um, I think in its best sense what we mean is there are no conditions left to be met before Jesus can return. 
Like there's nothing else that has to happen. Jesus can return any time. Can five minutes from now, five years from now, 500 years from now, nothing stands in the way except the father's timetable. But that has been the case apparently since the disciples day, because Jesus told them to be watching as well. Mm -hmm. So apparently in one sense, no, there's nothing, the times and seasons, there are no stars that have to yet align. Jesus can return at any time. And so we hang on to that. And yet we also have all of this stuff in the New Testament talking about what the times will be like. You know, that if you have ears here, you know, and, then they, and Paul talks in, in Thessalonians and other places about the, the nature of the world. And, uh, and so, you know, the, the listener is saying, look, I look at the world and I'm seeing all these signs. And, and they're right. The difficulty is prior generations also did that. Every generation, and I and I could I could document this. I you know I've written some papers where I where I do document this uh, throughout specifically English history, where like every generation of the English divines in the post Reformation days thought that they were living in the last days. Christ was immediately going to return. Why? Because well, the Catholics were in power. Oh no no no, the Protestants are now in power. Mm-hmm. So Jesus is coming back, and they could lay out all of the events of the Book of Revelation and all of that to prove that they were in the final moments and Jesus was about to return. And every generation does that. Now, of course, one generation will ultimately be right, but right. The, but the point is we need to be humble about those assertions because every time we say, here's the date, the date comes and goes mm-hmm. um, because we don't have that. No man knows the day or the mm-hmm. hour. Yeah. So it, we must live as if Jesus were to come back today yeah. because he could, but we must also plan and prepare the, the works of the good works of the kingdom as if we still had a hundred years of work ahead of us. That's good. And I think we can get distracted. We can. We can get distracted by looking, you know, just spending our lives. When's he coming? When's he mm-hmm. coming? And lose track of what am I doing now to build yeah. the kingdom? Right. Because it's essentially people, you always hear these stories. If people, once the people get a date in their hands, oh, it's going to be July 2nd of such a year, they go sell all their possessions and buy white robes and go sit on their roof. And I mean, you get all this and then it doesn't happen and they're impoverished. So that story plays out off time and time and time again in history. Yeah. So there's a sense that you have to take it seriously, mm-hmm. but the right kind of seriously. Yeah. yeah. Be faithful good. today. Be faithful today. I've got another question for you, sure. but I don't even know if this is fair. I'm going to ask you to do it in under two minutes. Ooh. Are you up for it? for the challenge. Dr. J, are you up for it? Okay, here goes. Our listener says, my Bible has Maccabees, Hmm. wisdom, Mm -hmm. but why does the Ethiopian Bible have even more books? And why is the Ethiopian Bible rarely seen or used here? Yeah, yeah, sure. Good, good, good question. It's two minutes. Yeah. (laughs) Well, anybody who's been around Christianity uh, at all for any length of time knows that there are different arms of Christ's church that actually do have you know, different things they will include between the covers of their Bibles. Um, The 66 books that you probably recognize from, you know, your standard Bible that you'd go buy at Zondervan bookstore or whatever. um, Those 66 books are generally agreed by the, by everybody, all Christians everywhere at all times, more or less. Uh, Roman Catholicism has a series of books, the Apocrypha, the Pseudepigrapha, they're so-called that they also believe should be in there. And Protestants are like, no, not so much. And so there's a friendly, Sometimes not so friendly dialogue, you know, <laughs> well, Ethiopian Orthodoxy is another one of those arms of Christ church that also looks at other ancient documents and says, well, these these warrant being listened to. Mm-hmm. These are important uh, documents. And Ethiopian, Ethiopian Orthodoxy is one of the oldest Christian denominations that predates Protestants and Roman Catholics together because they wrote their um, historical conversion back to um, Philip in the desert. With the uh, yes. Ethiopian eunuch, yep. and so you have almost the, the almost the most ancient form of the gospel going to Ethiopia, there, and here in the West Michigan area, Grand Rapids specifically, we have a very vibrant uh, 
Ethiopian Orthodox community. Really? Oh, yes. Lovely and great food. Um, <laughs> Ethiopian restaurants that are run by, oh, by nice. these folks. Yeah. Wow. And uh, fantastic. But they, it, they view themselves as a very ancient form of Christianity, but they're very, it's a very small. Mm. Yeah. Their numbers are very small, which is why if you were to go to the you know the bookstore, Christian bookstore, you probably won't find an Ethiopian Orthodox book on the shelf because their Bible, because there's just very little demand for mm-hmm. it, and yeah. uh, and of yeah. course it's in Ethiopian. So what you can say, what we can say is that all Christians, the two two plus billion Christians around the world, we all agree that there are sixty the sixty six. Yep. Our good friend Chris says, what does it mean to be held in Abraham's bosom? I think that Jesus actually used that terminology in the Gospels. So what does it mean to be held in Abraham's bosom? What does being saved in the name of Christ mean for those who came before Christ? I think that's how it was understood before Christ that the believer went to Abraham's bosom and Jesus took up on that, picked up on that terminology. Yes, that was... um yeah, and it's hard to tell from the Gospels whether this is actually sort of God saying this is this is actually what's happening, or if Jesus is working with sort of the popular mythology of his day. It's a little confusing. Um, the ancient Near Eastern view of the world that wasn't this wasn't unique to just Israel. It was like all the you know Mesopotamian cultures like that did see the the universe in a sort of three tiered system. So you have. Um, you know, you have the heavens where the deities dwell, and then you have the earth where humanity dwells, and then you have the under the earth, mm-hmm. which you can see reflected right in the Ten Commandments, where you're not supposed to make a graven image of anything that's in heaven, on the earth, or under the earth. That's a reflection of the ancient Near Eastern view of things. So the way it was put together is the idea that those who die before Christ does the completed work of Christ have to go somewhere else because the redemption has not occurred. And so Abraham's bosom, which is what was sometimes seen as a kind of a cordoned off section of the underworld. Mm-hmm. Uh, so part of like hell, if you will, or Tartarus or whatever, depending on you know what mythology you're using. And so that's where they remain in some form until the finished work of Christ. And then Christ, you know, as Paul speaks in Ephesians and things like that, descends and liberates mm-hmm. captives. It's mm-hmm. a, it's called in the tradition, the harrowing of hell. Um, which um, is often said is, you know, here, what is Christ doing for the three days that he's dead or what's going on there? Well, that's where you, at least for literary purposes, you insert this, the harrowing of hell. Christ travels down, releases the captives that have been um, held in that place because they are now free to ascend to meet the Father. Um, that's that's kind of popularly, popular, popularly how that lays out. Now, theologians themselves are skeptical, that those are actually the proper use of those passages. Okay. And so you, it ends up it, this uh, whole idea of Abraham's bosom in this separate place and Christ liberating that becomes almost a piece of um, Christian history and Christian interpretation because the Bible doesn't lay it out that clearly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As far as I can tell, believers from any time went to be with the Lord. With the Lord, yeah. So you have Elijah being take, taken up into a chariot into heaven. And you have Enoch. Enoch walked with God and then was God no more. Mm-hmm. So those before Christ went to be in paradise, 
because they were saved by the work of Christ, which they were looking forward to. That's, as far as I can tell and understand, that's the way I look at it. And that's the way the writer of Hebrews sort of speaks at it, that they were looking for something they were told was coming, and their faith was counted, was credited on the basis of that belief that God would be faithful to deliver the the Redeemer that God promised. Just as our faith, in a sense, looks backward to mm-hmm. a Christ that we can't, I mean, we don't see. We, we sure. didn't walk the shores of Galilee with him. For us, it's a historical reality that we can no longer like be part of literally but we put faith in that historical event in the past that God who was faithful in the past in Christ will then be faithful to bring the rest of the story to completion so in a sense we also like them look forward to the finished work of God mm-hmm. and putting our faith in the fact that Christ will return God will bring the story to completion redemption will run the full gamut that all things will be you know made uh, remade and in a recreation, we too look forward to a redemptive reality that we have not yet seen. They were doing they they were not doing anything different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have two two different things there though, because the Old Testament saints were taken to paradise without their bodies, presumably. I mean, just like us yeah. when our spirits go to be with Christ. But we all. All believers from all of history are looking forward to new heavens and new earth. That's how I would interpret what you just said. Yeah, I, yes, yes, I would. Yeah, that all faith does look, faith looks forward and it looks back. And here's a question from Sue. She says she's been studying John this year, and it seems like they studied a, pes- a passage that stated that Lazarus was raised from the dead twice. If that's true, where is that passage? Mm. Um, I, that may be a bit. Of, there may be a bit of misunderstanding there because I don't. I don't know of any passage that talks about Lazarus being raised twice, except perhaps in the sense that we know that he died and Jesus brought him back to life, and he dies again, and will one day be raised again. So there gotcha. is a second resurrection for him coming. Yes. So if that's what the, where the question was at, that makes sense. Yeah. The the story is in John. 11, I just refreshed my mind with the story, and there's there's definitely only one resurrection <laughs> in there. there. Mm-hmm. And, and yet it says, after Je- Re- Jesus raised Lazarus, there was a plot to kill Lazarus. Mm-hmm. And oh. so they, they definitely wanted to kill him again. Right. There, there's no he's record. Evidence of, yeah, he's yeah. evidence of Jesus. There's no record of, of them succeeding at that plot, but yeah. I think what you're saying is right, that he was raised once. He died again, and he will be raised again. When we are all raised. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that's pretty clear. All right. That was that was pretty easy. That was an easy one. Yeah, yeah. I'll take those. Right. Sometimes we get the hard ones. Maybe this one. This is from our good friend Lucy. In Genesis 10, Lucy texts. She says, each of Noah's descendants had their own language. In Genesis eleven seven, it says he had to confuse their language. So... In Genesis 10, you have people with different languages, but the languages weren't changed till chapter chapter 11. 11. Does that make sense? It does. It does. Because Genesis 11 is the story of the Tower of Babel, where uh, where God breaks them up and sends them out in different languages. So it appears, as the listener correctly identifies, it appears to be out of order, that you have multiple languages in Genesis 10, but you don't have multiple languages until Genesis 11. So how Hmm. how do you resolve this apparent uh, conundrum, and it, it's the simplest solutions are usually the best. And it, it in the 
probable solution here is that Genesis 10 is a kind of long-standing history. It's not just um, a story of the mm. past. It's a story of what goes uh, forward because you're getting each of the sons of Noah and their descendants. Mm-hmm. So their descendants are going to have the languages. So you almost get this. It's almost a prelude to what's coming. Because remember, Genesis wasn't written in, written in real time. Right. You know, hundreds and thousands of years later, Moses or somebody else, and then some editing was done. And there's all this kind of stuff that goes into the, the document history. So when they're writing this history down, there's nothing that says they have to go in chronological order. Sure. So yeah. there appears to be this list of here's where this is all going. Now, beginning in chapter 11 with Babel, here's how we got there. Is mm-hmm. It's kind of like, this is how it makes sense in my head. So tell me if I'm understanding this correctly. It's kind of like if I said to you, I had, whoa, I had a really busy week. Let me break it down for you. On Monday. Exactly. Yeah, no, that's, so, ex- that's exactly the kind okay. of thing. You get the, here's, here's how Moses' sons, how, their ch- how the children all broke down. Now let's begin to tell you the story of how we got there. In detail. In detail, yeah. yeah. Or it could be like the theatrical trailer. There you go. Coming. Here's what's coming. That's right. Makes me want to go see the movie. The sons, the languages of the sons of Noah. Right. Because when you look at lots of the places that are listed, most of these places don't exist yet either mm. yeah, in that list. Good they point. are places that become like Assyria and Nineveh and you know Egypt. None of those exist in the day of Moses or the day of um, of Noah. So right. what you get is the the author of Genesis kind of giving who knows more, right? Because they they're writing in this sure, as sure, a sure. history. So they're writing out here's where the history is going to go. Clear as mud. So diving into scripture, there's a lot of things that right out the gate like as we're kind of encountering it for the first time can be confusing. Yes. And, and especially if we don't understand the context, especially if we don't understand the culture, like <laughs> what is going on here? Yeah. And so we have a question this morning in regards to Leviticus. Now, oh, if fun. you're not, if you're, if you haven't recently read Leviticus, maybe this doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but if you want to pull up Leviticus 27, you can take a look at it real quick. But here's the question for you, Dr. Jeremy. What does it mean to make a special vow to dedicate someone to the Lord by paying the value of that person? It seems strange to assign money value to different genders or different ages. Thanks for your insights. So before yeah. before you even answer the question, can you kind of reframe what's happening there a little well, bit? Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, the, the the awkward part that uh, the the uh, the caller identifies is this idea of, of assigning value to person, monetary value, which at one level strikes you as very like dehumanizing, mm-hmm. right? But in if you just if you think of it in economic terms, we do this all the time. You know, when there's a when a company is brought into a courtroom for having hurt a bunch of people and they have to assign damages, they are essentially assigning a some kind of monetary value to that human life. I mean, we we do this as all the time, even in our culture, when you go to work and you're paid minimum wage or whatever, there's an assigning of value to the work you do. And I think that's the key in this passage, because when you look at it, a 20 to 60 year old man is valued at 50, where a five to 20 year old man is valued at 20. Well, that's because of the labor value difference. It's not a it's not a reflection of human value. It's not like teenagers and children aren't don't have as much value as adults mm-hmm. uh, in an absolute sense. Sure, sure, or, sure, sure, sure. But in an in an occupational vocational sense, mm-hmm. the kind of work they can do is worth more. So you have this. There's a kind of an economic thing going on here, not so much a uh, 
a human value. Sure, it's and, not. It's not like the Lord was saying, "Hey, if you're, you know, if you got a strong back, no. you're worth more." But not in absolute terms. Right, right, right. But you are worth more on a farm. Sure. Right, and and sadly, culturally, that is also why, say, women are valued less than men because in that culture at that time, their labor is worth less. Again, in absolute terms, we we think yeah. differently than that, and as we should. But this just it's just a reminder that God did not drop. The, the Bible kind of magically out of the heaven. You know, the, the, the Mormons have like the, the book, the golden tablets, which are just kind of delivered from heaven as they are. God didn't do that with the Bible. God, God spoke it into a particular culture mm-hmm. and God is very good at sort of stooping over, condescending to speak into the actual culture. So in terms that they would understand and, and there's a bit of mercy in that, that God didn't require them to become something before God would interact with them. Mm -hmm. God took them right where they were with all their myopias and all their cultural prejudices and says, you know, I can work with that. Mm. And that ought to comfort us a little bit because we're in the same boat, you know, and God uses us not after we reach a certain level of holiness or value or, you know, Christianity. God uses us right where we are and grows us from that point. And here's... Here's, here's the heart of it that applies to us. God was saying, here's a way that you can honor me. You know, mm-hmm. if you have a vow, you know, you can give this amount of money and this will be a way of, of you worshiping me, and of it, honoring me. And so how can we, we can make the transfer to our culture and say, what are the ways, what does it look like in my culture to financially mm-hmm. honor God? I think that's the underlying principle, isn't it? It, it is. And the text even uh, the text even hints at the thing you're talking about, that God doesn't intend this to be a legalistic law that, that, that assigns value to people because at the kind of the end of the passage, there's actually all this room given that if you're too poor to pay this, mm-hmm. you know, pay this instead. Right. So there's an expression like it's not about the money. Mm-hmm. It's about the heart. Yeah. And so God is saying, look, here's, here's, what it, here's a value to place on it culturally. If you can't meet that, you're not left out. Come anyways. Thanks for letting Barry and Shauna walk the real-life journey with you. The content from the Barry and Shauna podcast comes from their live show, Barry and Shauna Mornings on 89.3 Moody Radio, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Reach out to us by texting 800-968-8930 and please subscribe.